Lord, we ask that you would indeed um, dwell among us as the one who is high and lifted up, and then also, Lord, among us who are contrite and lowly of spirit and revive us, O God. Thank you that you are ever faithful, ever good, and always moving us to conform to the image of Christ. Uh, And we thank you for our Redeemer. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so it's a it's a passage. Um, I realize it might be uh, hitting you for the first time, but it's a it's a passage coming from a letter. The letter is inspired by God. God uses the personality of Paul um, to uh, to shape this letter. Uh, the process of inspiration is quite unique, and and we're not really fully sure how it happened. But we believe that God superintended the whole process and kept the sinfulness of Paul out of it. And we have this letter that moves from topic to topic, and now we have a new topic. The topic is that Paul is representing churches in Macedonia. Uh, You may remember these churches as perhaps the, the, the ones we know in Scripture are Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. Uh, Macedonia is right next to, to Greece. They have a long history, not always getting along, uh, even to this present day. Uh, so the Macedonian churches, um, really uh, that part of Europe, the first part of Europe that was reached by the gospel, by the Apostle Paul, the Macedonian vision that Paul has in the book of Acts, where he, uh, instead of going right on the map, going east, he goes left and goes west and into Europe, and uh, the first convert recorded in Scripture is a woman named Lydia. And so these Macedonians have responded to this this call of the Apostle Paul. Now, this is a little bit unique. It might be new to some of us. In several of Paul's epistles, he mentions the idea that he's traveling around, and he's gathering a collection. Uh, He's gathering an offering for what are called the saints in Jerusalem. Now, what had happened was there was drought that had hit Jerusalem, and there had just been a severe economic downturn, and the Christians in the Jerusalem church were suffering. In fact, they were apparently the worst suffering of all the churches, but I would imagine many, many of the people in these churches were poor, not a lot of wealthy people. And so what Paul was doing was he was trying to spur the the churches uh, along to to give to to this offering, and so that's that's what's going on here. And now Paul is seeing that the Corinthians grace is active in the Corinthians. God's grace has moved the Corinthians to repent. Uh, they've repented of uh, really putting up with immorality in their church, divisions, a lack of respect for Paul turning to other apostles, and Paul has more to say about this subject, but he sees through the report of Titus, one of his companions who's come back from Corinth, hey, these Corinthians, they've changed their heart. God has given them the grace of repentance. So now Paul is using the, the grace that stirred the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians, to consider the Macedonian example and to give, and to give to, to this worthy cause. Now, there's something about our hearts 
that really can only be ruled by one thing at a time. It's kind of hard to be double-hearted if that's even possible, right? It's kind of hard to really be ruled by more than one thing at a time. So when I have food in front of me, I'm ruled by that food, let me tell you, right? Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how our hearts are easily ruled by really one thing at a time. And we might have the general pursuit of happiness in some way, but we're, we're kind, of, kind of feeling our way through life trying to be happy. One American humorist named Don Harold said that unhappiness is not knowing what we want and killing ourselves to get it. So we're just kind of trying to figure out life, and whatever's in front of us we think will, be, will make us happy. There's something that's always flooding our hearts. Something's always flooding our hearts. Maybe it's your career. Um, maybe it's money. Maybe you know, it's something's, always, something's always kind of ruling us, right? But only the grace of God that's in Christ and deeply enjoyed, deeply received, only the grace of God that's in Christ can really flood our heart with freedom. You think about the ministry of Jesus and perhaps many of his parables and his teachings. A lot of it was about freedom, about, about to understand him, to receive him, to embrace his teaching. You found true water. You found true bread. You found true freedom. Think about his conversation with the woman at the well. It's really a conversation about finding freedom and deep, deep peace. So only the grace of God in Christ, deeply enjoyed and received, can flood the heart with freedom. Now, let's do some text work here. We're just going to go along and get a feel for this text, and I'm going to talk a bit about the heart, obviously. Now, is Paul a tyrant when he deals with people? Is he a tyrant? I would suspect that this is a criticism that some in Corinth have raised against him. That, you know, when this guy really wants to motivate people, he lords it over people. He's kind of brutal and he's very stern. And Paul brings this up as an example of, well, look at how the Macedonians responded to me. Well, it was really of their own accord. You notice that he's kind of surprised, actually, at the grace of God. He's something unexpected. So it's an example of the opposite, that Paul was not one who was a tyrant particularly when it came to this idea of money. Um, Paul loved grace and believed that grace was more than sufficient to motivate the heart. I hope I'm a big believer in that. I don't really talk a lot about money directly as a preacher. Some of you have been here for a long time. I actually had people who've been here a while, why don't you talk more about you know, money or tithing? And I said, well, the offerings seem to be sufficient. What would you want me to talk about? I'm just going to beat on them. Not really didn't say that, but just you should talk more about it. So, well, maybe we need maybe we need to. I've seen God do some great things with people's generosity over the years in this church. We were exhausted when we finished this building program. I remember at an elders meeting, we, we, were, we were so happy to be inside this building, and we're just exhausted financially and otherwise, and and then we're in this building. We're sitting on these brown, rusting folding chairs, just the uh, just aesthetic tragedies. And uh, you know, we're there. And I said, everything looks kind of this looks really odd. And someone said, you know, we need some new chairs. And I said, well, you can't bring up money. You can't bring up you can't. 
No, we should do it. No, we should do it. So what elders mean, we talked about the idea. I said, okay, you know. So while the announcement's being made, I'm kind of ducking my head, you know. We need some new chairs. Here's some examples of the chairs we want to order. It'll cost $10,000. Oh, man, this is not going to go well. Within two weeks, the money came in. How about that? So God's people could be generous. This church has been faithful and generous. Money has a power over us, doesn't it? Somewhere in this strange world. By the way, it's not so easy in the Old Testament to come up with a 10% tithe. Actually, if you really, really look at it, there's like four different kinds of tithes. So those of you who love math, let's all talk about this. You know, kind of averages out to about, I don't know. It's more than 10%, by the way. But here's the odd thing about that 10% thing is that, well, I did my 10% God thing, and now I got that 90. Uh Uh-uh, not so fast. Because it's a lordship issue, isn't it? All of it has been loaned to you. All of it you are a steward of. Money has a strange power over us. Jesus said uh, it's... uh, it's an either-or argument, um, which can be a fallacy in logic, but not here. No one can serve two masters. Uh, money is compared is described as a master. Um, for either he will hate the one. Oh, is you're not mild toward anyone who messes with your money. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There's an emotional, potentially bitter relationship we have with with being ruled um, by anything other than what we want as our pleasure. So, money is a pleasure. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one, and here's a universal negative, no one can serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. Now, Jesus says this for our joy. It's not just a, isn't that terrible? <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a, well, that's, that's an insight. I can identify with that. I understand that. I see, its, I see its ruling power over me. Money has a strange power over us. In, in the Bible, there are um, at least there's at least one example of people who who used money and the appearance of being generous um, as a way of deceiving the church, and it's central to this dynamic moment in the history of the church, the history of the early church, the book of Acts. Things are moving, things are going. Peter's preaching, people are converted. Then there's this moment in a gathering at at, at the church in Jerusalem. And this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they give the appearance of, of giving the proceeds of, of a real estate sale. And, and they, they give the appearance of giving all. And they, only, they hold back. And they are struck down dead. Holiness is always important in the church. This particular moment in the progress of the church. Deception was not accepted. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira, money had a power and a grip over them. It's, an, it's a form of idolatry. 
C.S. Lewis, uh, speaking about the idea of feigned humility, he said, a man is never so proud as when striking an attitude of humility. So these are poor churches. They cannot afford to give generously. They might give something. Paul's acknowledged that they gave beyond their means. It's, it's sort of like a someone who, let's say the old days when you actually had wheat in your house and you would grind it up and you'd make flour and then you'd make bread, right? Those old days. Well, imagine yourself giving away. You've got a family. You've got some buckets of, of wheat around the house or barrels. And, and you have your own family's needs. And, but you've learned of the needs of someone else, and you give, you give more. In fact, you put your f- own family at risk because you, you, you've given beyond just a kind of a nice token. You, you've given out, and you have now, in a sense, recklessly given, generously given. That's what's going on in these Macedonian churches. They gave sacrificially beyond their means, they didn't regard their needs. Have you ever seen that in a, in a genuinely poor person? Have you ever seen them give? And you feel a bit uncomfortable, like, whoa, this is real. I've seen this in Mexico a number of times. People are giving out of a love for someone, and they are risking uh, their own, uh, well, they're risking a lot in the, in the expression of generosity. Well, what, what's going on with the Macedonians? Well, the Macedonian churches have expressed a dependence upon God, and they've refused to take to their own hearts an anxious thought. You remember Jesus, of course, teaches this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be anxious for your own lives. In fact, when you are praying... Remember and know that your Heavenly Father knows your needs. So as the Macedonian churches hear of this, these people they had never met, they give above and beyond, knowing their Heavenly Father will take care of them. The normal self-regard, the normal self-regard, even the reasonable self-regard, You should take care of your family's needs. Even the reasonable, normal self-regard had been eclipsed from their hearts. And Paul wanted to tell the Corinthians about it. Now, this is not just a nice story. This is an introduction to what grace always does. It's not just grace, oh, that's what God can do when, when the church really needs some funds for a building project or something. This is what God's grace always does. There's a generosity of welcoming people, a generosity of greeting people, a generosity of opening up your home. There's a generosity of of letting someone else uh, tell their story while you're talking to them. You might have a better story. (laughs) Just let them tell their story. There's a generosity of just letting Someone else be the center. A generosity. Grace is almost always working at our the level of our rights. I have the right to this. If grace arrives in our hearts, it has the power to slave 
slay even normal self-regard. Tolkien, Tolkien understood the power of objects and money, idolatry. He understood its power over us. He created this this hobbit. He goes by the name Smeagol. We mostly know him as Gollum. Hobbits were known for throwing parties and hospitality, wearing bright clothes. Not Gollum. Gollum was under the power of his precious, the ring. And over time, he is not recognizable as a hobbit anymore. Tolkien is communicating that sin Gollumizes us. It distorts us. If you were to look at your view of yourself and what you feel you're entitled to, if I was to look at myself, it would be like a, like a carnival mirror, all distorted and all, you know, Think of the things that Marianne's put up with over the years. My distorted sense of entitlement and rights. Scripture flat out says, you're going to be taken care of. Did you know that? Flat out. Jesus, our Lord, says he has got you. And affirmed in various scripture We are to have peace knowing God is going to take care of us. Search your hearts. Let me ask you, search your hearts. Where are you saying, Heavenly Father, you you can't take care of me here. can't take care of me here. It's that orphan spirit, that orphan spirit. I'm I'm alone in this world. The disciples had that orphan spirit, Peter pulls out his little sword and tries to defend Jesus. This orphan spirit owns us. Before the Lord's Supper, I remind us in our liturgy, he who did not spare his own son, Romans 8, but gave him up for us all, Christ is the standard. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not? How will he not? It's a rhetorical question. How will he not also with him, with him, give us all things? It wouldn't surprise me if we have to say that verse to our hearts uh, regularly, daily. And grace, even for the Apostle Paul, moving among the Macedonians... It was like catching a waterfall and keeping it alive in a mason jar. Even Paul was like, it was not what we expected. Verse 5, they gave themselves to the Lord, and this seems to be the key. Look at verse 5. They gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They, they, they saw there was a connection between this offering and, and Paul's authority and Paul's work. But they gave themselves to the Lord. That's an entrusting of themselves. 
and their needs to God. And then verse 8, Paul is almost, he's always, um, he, he's always uh, establishing a principle, not so much a command. It's interesting to watch Paul work. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command. You see that? We might be tempted to say, oh, well, that's not really commanded in Scripture then. No, 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 slow down. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that's the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. So this is what leadership in, in, a, in Christian, uh, a Christian church or Christian school, this is, what, this is what leadership does, moms, dads at home. You, you challenge your children. And press on in this grace. You see grace demonstrated. Mm-hmm, God's at work. So it's a the principle. What's the principle? The grace of God moved among poor people, and they gave with no regard for their own lives. Paul sets that up. It's an extensive, long principle. God will take care of you. And then there's the, the foundational truth. Paul sort of waits. We wait for, how does this relate to Jesus again? Look at verse 9. That's the foundational truth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the whole of his, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not isolated to one part of his life. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, that would refer to his pre-incarnate existence, that is that he was rich in glory, rich in recognition as God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, became incarnate, took on a flesh suit and dwelt among us, tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He, he became poor, of course, on the cross, took upon himself our lack of obedience and, and our guilt. Now notice the dynamic here then is this is what the Macedonians grasp. They grasp how, look at the very end of verse 9, how they have become rich in Christ. And this is the key. The key to whenever we are walking down the track of Gollum, the key What's happened is we've lost how rich we are. And now we are in the pursuit of something that will finally make us the way we want to be. Moses was rich in status, wasn't he? Second in command of the great ancient Egyptian empire. And yet he was willing to associate and identify with the people of Israel and begin to suffer, right? Moses is a picture of Christ descending from glory and associating with humble people. We mentioned earlier in our service, Hebrews 11, this great cloud of witnesses, all of them descended in some way or another to to a place of humility
Paul is reminding the Corinthians just how rich they are. Jesus gave up his right to remain in the riches of glory. He remained, he gave himself and was willing to suffer for us. And so what is the call out of this passage? The call out of this passage is to remind ourselves that it is not our status in this world that makes us anything. It's the status that Jesus has given us through his poverty. Through his poverty, he gave you wealth justified you by faith alone, allowed you a a legal process whereby you can stand and you have met the requirements of the law. You've had someone come and represent you before before the, the courtroom of God and now by faith you can be declared free from that judgment. How did all that happen? He was willing to become poor, to walk this earth and to obey his heavenly father and to give his life on the cross that you might have. He was willing to to go without status that you might have status. Let me close with this, this account. This account comes from the ancient, old, not ancient, old Austrian-Hungarian Empire years ago. In 1861, I believe it was, their emperor, Franz Joseph, had died. Some of you in your European history remember that. The Habsburg Empire. And the funeral procession had arrived at a, a monastery... And the herald, there was usually someone who would be announcing the procession. And of course, the king has died, and he's, he's there in his coffin. And the herald knocks on the gate of this monastery. And from the large doors, you could hear the abbot on the other side say, Who are you? And the herald says, I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austin, king of Hungary. The herald replied, I don't know you. Who are you? I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, Bohemia, Galatia, Lodomeria, and Dalmatia, grand duke of Transylvania, margrave of Moravia, Duke of Styria and Corinthia. We don't know you, replies the abbot. Who are you? Thereupon the messenger knelt down and said, I am Franz Joseph, a poor sinner, humbly begging God's mercy. And the abbot said, Thou mayest enter here. And the doors of the gates were opened.
What is it about us that grace doesn't flow from us? What is it about me? It's not about our money. What is it about us? We think in terms of titles. We think in terms of privileges and rights. And we're called to go to that, ho- that lowly place. I'm a sinner crying out for God's mercy. Essentially, who am I to hold back the grace that I need and give it to others? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've opened the gates to us. Not the gates of a monastery, but the gates of heaven. And the one who had the greatest title the Lord of Lords and King of Kings was willing to go unidentified in this, in his moments on this earth, humbly serving your purposes. We thank you for this marvelous grace that's in us by your spirit and that though the eternal Son of God was rich, he, for our sake, became poor. Help us to Help us to identify with that and to understand how rich we are. Father, we pray you'd revive the hearts of the contrite. Be among us, Lord. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.